David and I are like comedy couple for watches. We're sort of laughing in the corner. We're like Beavis and Butthead. So like going to these events is like a comic performance. We just see things that we just can't stop laughing because either it like ties into an inside joke we have or there's some type of Swiss watch marketing trope about like, you know, making something up about their history or claiming that they do something that they clearly don't do themselves. There's some product which is just like patently doesn't work or like when a complicated watch they baby just like explodes in their hand. How often do we look at each other and we're like, okay, Okay, here it goes again. One more time we have to deal with this. <laughs> on this week's Ablog to Watch Weekly, we are joined by Paul, better known as F1PTV on Instagram. We talk all things Geneva watch days and ask if the watch makers are really listening to the watch buyers. We then review the latest from Tudor, Montblanc, Mr. Jones and Carl F. Bookerer, but most importantly, my Auntie Jack makes an appearance. Enjoy the show. Greetings and welcome to this week's A Blog to Watch Weekly. We have the usual cast, David and Ariel, but we're also joined by Paul. Paul, why don't you go first and tell us who you are and why on earth I've got you on this show, if you actually know why I've got you on this That's show. That's a very good question. <laughs> <laughs> Hi everyone, Paul Blanford, F1 PTB on Instagram. I am a watch collector slash watch geek who has just been over to Geneva Watch Days, have a rather eclectic collection of stuff that tends to include a lot of the independent brands that were exhibiting over there. Yes, and despite our many efforts over the last number of months to try to get together to do something, this is the closest we've managed to do, which is 600 miles away with you based in London and me up in Glasgow. But uh, yeah, Paul, thank you for coming on the show. David, Ariel, how are you both? Uh, I'm good. It's uh, 93 degrees Fahrenheit in my office right now. It's Part of our lovely heat wave here in Los Angeles. If only you had somewhere cold in your house you could go that was maybe concrete, that didn't have any windows. Maybe like a garage or something. Do, do, maybe a garage would be a good place to <laughs> That's to actually hide. warmer. It's like a hot box in the California garage. Is that because the door's open and won't close it's properly? It's because we make our homes out of balsa wood and apparently you guys use like rock from the earth. So that's that's usually why, we do, yeah. We do use it. why they don't blow down. Ariel just for everybody is having a bit of issue with his garage door. I, I'm I'm a homeowner. There's always an issue with something. <laughs> that is true. So we'll leave that for the a blog to watch garage door show. But I fixed it tonight. I fixed it tonight. So you know, small success, small victory. The key thing being that you fixed it and nobody else. Yeah, yeah. That's right. <laughs> that's right. David, how are you doing? Good. Good. Back from Geneva where we hung out and had a great time, I believe. So, you know, that was fun to have you join and uh, discover the beauties of the various five-star hotels and their cramped suites and alleys and all that, aisles, I should say. So, yeah, I think we had fun. How was it for you, Rick? It was very, very good. I mean, it was already very, very expensive to go and get a burger mm -hmm. anywhere in Geneva, but it was almost exceptionally expensive for you, David. Do you want to tell the good listeners? Why? Why was it? Oh, because I left my my camera with all the pictures and my flash and everything down at the counter uh, where we pay. So you know, I went down like ten minutes later to check if the if the, if the food was ready, and they said, "Is this camera yours?" And I was like, "Yes, it still is." Thankfully, <laughs> I, I, you know, oh, this, wow. is, this has never happened to me. I've owned that camera for like seven years. It's been with me around the world, and it's sticking around. So you know, knock on wood. One Scotsman later, immediately distracted by the wit and entertainment that I brought to the day and he forgot his camera. Yeah. 
that and probably the culture shock of a $65 burger. Two. That I was guess. maybe actually more what played in your mind. You were maybe just distracted thinking about how you were going to have to mortgage your house oh, to pay for it. <laughs> exactly. It really makes you wonder how overpriced the watches are if the burgers cost over $60, right? Maybe they are not that overpriced because they have to pay for all these burgers. <laughs> maybe, maybe. It's an open question, right? Right. <laughs> so, Paul, did you have to mortgage anything, sell any kidneys or even any watches in order to get to Geneva this time round? Uh, no, I was uh, I was lucky enough to, to do all right this time round, although I have had some discussions about some of the watches I saw there, so I might have to mortgage something in order to pay for those should they arrive. So what was the highlight of the show for you, Paul? Uh, I'm going to be controversial here and say... It was the Tudor, wasn't it? It was the Tudor. Absolutely. Tudor's definitely my thing. <laughs> J- joking aside, a nice blue vintage snowflake will one day finally make his way into my collection um but uh surprisingly enough it wasn't the tudor um i'm going to be controversial and say i wasn't taken by any of the brand new new releases so i've been talking to the guys at at the Vatoons since Dubai Watch Week when I first had this particular watch on my wrist and i absolutely fell in love with their dream watch 5 and have been talking to them about potentially placing an order for one ever since then. And so I continued to do that whilst I was over in Geneva. And that certainly was not helped by being invited along to the Seeking Perfect premiere, whereby the main star of the show, apart from Denis Flagellet, is in fact him making a dream watch. So yeah, if anyone hasn't seen that, it's free to watch on seekingperfectfilm.com. A perfect way to spend half an hour and uh, make you want a very expensive dream watch. Good, because we all need encouragement to want really expensive exactly. things. It's something that's really, really lacking in motivation in our lives. <laughs> yeah. De- definitely. I mean, you know, as a watch collector, we, we're clearly uh, immune to wanting expensive things. So, yeah, that worked, that worked really well. We're going to link together a little bit of our discussion about Geneva and Jake's most recent article, which is entitled, Is Anyone Listening? A Glance at the Watch Community's Influence on the Industry. At which Jake posits the scale of the influence and you go into the comment section on the article and agree or disagree. But what is your feelings, Ariel, about how you perceive the watch industry to actually listen to watch geeks or is it just to the mass marketing people when they're looking at selling millions of pounds worth of these or is it different for big brands and little brands? Honestly, this is not an easy topic. It's not a straightforward question and there's no straightforward answer. I think it's safe to say that watch brands today listen to consumers a lot more because they have access to consumer feedback. I think for many years, consumer feedback was difficult to come by and it was kind of murky once you got it. So it's a relatively recent phenomenon that watch brands even have conversations with collectors or data about what they're doing through behavior online and things like that. Uh, There was purchase information as data in the past. It, again, wasn't as comprehensive. And some of the past information was better than the information today. But today, watch brands are given an unprecedented amount of data to look at, and some of it's contradictory. They don't necessarily know who to listen to. There is this phenomenon where a lot of brands believe that their job is to make what the consumer wants to buy. And so they listen very carefully, but they can't, of course, make everything. And some are better at implementing the instructions than others. It's actually very much a fact that consumers are usually poor at telling brands exactly what they want to buy. Sometimes they say it, but then the brand will actually make it and they won't buy it. And so brands need to 
distill, if you will, or filter the feedback intelligently and then think about what it makes the most sense. So it's a complicated process. So I say they are listening, but again, you can't please everyone. And it's a challenging thing for brands to decide what decisions to make, what products to invest in or whatever, when you know, they really can't do all of them. They have to pick and choose. I, 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 anyone disagree with that? No, it sounds so far so good. At Geneva, obviously, you're dealing with a lot of brands whereby you're speaking to the people that actually make the designs. My feeling was that they were actually, uh, a couple in particular, you could tell that their customers really were influencing what actually happened in their designs going forward. And a couple others, it was very much the person who owns the watch brand designing what they want and then bringing along their customers for the ride, if you like. Oh, interesting. Um, I think, you know, one brand that we met during uh, the event was Jacob & Co, who said, you know, they are very heavily pushing towards smaller watches, which makes sense. And I think it's about time that they do something like that, because obviously all those astronomies and, and other creations are amazing to look at. And you need all that space to create movements that spin on various axes and, you know, just basically three-dimensional objects. Very much, you know, just in a, basically in a completely different dimension than most other watches. But they're also way too large in some ways and, uh, and therefore difficult to wear. So that's where I feel that, you know, as they said, customer feedback and also sales is telling them that, hey, you know, we should migrate towards smaller more wearable watches bear in mind small is 44 43 for jacob and co you know so <laughs> the, the largest rolex is, is the smallest jacob and co but that, that's okay i'm not sure you know where creator brings the audience along who are you you're referring to i kind of felt that max was a mbnf was maybe more in that department mm -hmm. you know the story you told about his latest creation and how it was pretty much done, or the whole range of a more sporty MBNF was done because he was fed up being asked at poolside in Dubai, where he lives, about what he did for a living, him saying, oh, I'm a watchmaker, and then because he was wearing a Panerai by the pool, because it was the thing that was water resistant he had, being asked if that meant he was Mr. Panerai. <laughs> so he actually went and designed an 80 meter water resistant sports watch for his own range that actually he could wear himself so that every time he got asked what he did for a living, he could say, I make these as opposed to, you know, being mistaken for somebody that works for Rolex or Panerai or he wouldn't have been wearing an Amiga. He wouldn't have been wearing a Speedmaster by a pool either. So it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be that. Yeah. So I felt that Max was more of a guy who has an idea and goes, right, what's my design DNA for this? And then his personality brings along the people who love what he does, uh, who like him, who have a relationship with him. Paul, you you presumably fall into this this trait. Do you think you influence more what goes on at MBNF as a customer or that you're more influenced by what they actually produce? <laughs> Go on. <laughs> Confess. I, I'd love to uh, influence Max, but yeah, no, I mean, uh, you know, I own a couple of MBNFs, uh, an HM9 uh, and the original Evo, the, the perpetual uh, that you've just described very well. Matt openly says that he, he designed that watch for himself. And yeah, I'm 
more than happy to be along for the ride in, in in that one because it's an absolutely stunning watch and there's no you know there's actually no way despite the fact that i love the complication that they've created for the original legacy machine perpetual i wouldn't own that watch if it wasn't the evo version um just because it, it the evo version i think elevates it to a, a different level and and actually kind of fits in much more with my current sort of style and and lifestyle if you like not that i would ever necessarily wear it by the pool ironically of course i was going to say have you jumped off your super yacht wearing your evil <laughs> <laughs> not not off my super yacht nor out of bezel for towers window you know ne 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 neither of those two things battersea doesn't have a soft landing if you jump out the window yeah i was gonna say as close as i am to the thames i, I don't fancy that either but no i you know i think you're right you know max i think himself has has even described himself as, as selfish when it comes to watch design i think because he will only design things that that he likes and would wear himself having said that i mean i do think the lm 101 is an example of them uh, i guess adding new flavors to a smaller watch in response to people who in my mind i think i've always said you, you need to actually try an mbnf on and put it on your wrist to, to actually understand that despite the crazy dimensions of some of them they all designed to fit on a very reasonably sized wrist but i think the lm 101 is a response by them to people wanting a smaller mbnf or more flavors of a smaller mbnf because obviously it, it was launched and uh, i think max will admit or has admitted that it, it wasn't the greatest success when it was launched but now is obviously their best seller with the longest wait list around and and that i think is a bit of a response to the marketplace so i think it's a bit of both of them being there but certainly more the former uh, as you described talking about at brands responding we obviously had tudor dropping their release right in the middle of everybody else's lunch last week was that tudor finally a response to what the watch buying public was asking for that seems to be how it's been interpreted ariel that this is the tudor we've always wanted now i do not want a 39 mil tudor that's just me but it seems to be that this is scratching an itch that everyone claims to have had. What's your thoughts? Look, Tudor sits back and they look at sales data. And for them, the, one of the ways they evaluate it is what's selling in terms of diameter, material, price point, gender, style. And if they see a lot of people buying watches in a particular size, they ask themselves, should we make more in this size? But again, Tudor never likes to make new stuff. So it's actually easier for them to say, how can we take something we already make in a different size to satisfy demand rather than have to make something new? It's sort of their way of wiggling out of making a new product. The good thing is, and I wrote about this recently, where I think that watches should be offered in multiple sizes. So it is great that there's a larger and smaller Pelagos because the Pelagos is great, but it's very much the literal definition of what they call a line extension. And this used to be a term that you don't see anymore in the watch industry because it doesn't sound very exciting, but it's just a line extension. It was never considered that new or exciting. And oftentimes nobody even did press releases for line extension. So Tudor has graced everyone with a mere line extension and that's that. Yes, that's a fair point. David, what's your thoughts, first of all, on the Tudor and where it's gone, but also more broadly, if we think about Big Brother releasing a left-hand drive GMT, is there any way in which that was the watch community demanding a left-hand drive <laughs> GMT and Rolex suddenly going, yeah, let's do that, as opposed to just somebody 
I don't know, smoking something at lunchtime <laughs> and coming up with this idea. Right. Um. Well, it's strangely, I don't, I don't ever see Rolex call it a left hand or a lefty or anything like that. Uh. You know, that for the GMT. I and specifically, even during our meetings, they said, well, it's not just for left-handed people to wear on their right wrist. And then this discussion kind kind of started bearing, uh, you know, moving towards the question whether it makes any sense to have the crown on the right anymore. Because, you know, we don't use it anymore because we have self-winding watches and we only have to adjust the time every so often. And so it's kind of uncomfortable. You know, it's something that nobody really ever talks about unless there's like a huge onion crown or some other stuff. But, you know, generally speaking, I don't find crowns to be very comfortable because they dig into the top of my hand and all that. So Rolex has been sort of into making watches easier and more comfortable to wear and to own since the 1930s, since the original Rolex Oyster that was waterproof and self-winding and all that. And, you know, if you look into the history of that and how watches and what watches look like and how they work and how many different interactions they uh, required, you will see that the uh, current form of watches and why they look like the way that they do and function the way that they do goes back to you know the early 1900s precisely for that so so is there potentially some room for improvement and and for us to admit that you know perhaps we can totally have the crown on the left hand side of the case even though it looks odd at this point so again i'm not quite sure what's going on there but i can tell you that rolex never calls that a lefty watch and as for the smaller pelagos pelagos i think is the best watch tudor makes i'm not really a fan of vintage re-releases and all that nonsense so i like a modern watch and the pelagos is one of those especially in titanium so i feel like 39 is a great move for that and as ariel said it's not very exciting but it's just something that is good to have as an option paul what's your thoughts on the mass release watch world from your lofty heights of (laughs) buying things with limited edition runs do you care to say i don't care would be wrong because you know if, if, if something is new and, and exciting and interests me, then it doesn't matter whether it's come from an independent or from, you know, a, a quote unquote more mass produced brand. Having said that, there's very little that mass produced brands have, have released that's interested me over the past few years. I think adding to, I guess, the discussion about brands, you know, just adding another you know, line to the collection. I think if we look at what the Batoon did with the with their I guess, release for Geneva watch days, they made the, the DB28 perpetual calendar in a 40 mil size, which does look stunning, wears really well, but they've kept it alongside the DB25 perpetual calendar that they've always been making in a 44 mil size with the you know the green dial from the Dubai watch week. So I think, you know, it makes sense to, regardless of whether you're a mass-produced brand or, or an independent brand, to give uh, consumers choice. And, and I think, you know, the, the more of that, the better, regardless of whether it's coming from a, a smaller independent brand or a, or a large mass-produced brand. Yeah, it's truly good news that I have a choice of which Dabithun to buy now. Well, I, I, I thought you'd appreciate <laughs> that one, Rick, actually, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm going to have to really struggle as to which which size of Dabithun I put my well, name down I, for. I mean, I don't think you are, because we all know that the 40 mils are too small for you, so you, you're clearly going to have to go with the original. So, uh, yeah. Uh, that's, actually, that's actually true. That's actually, you see, see, you come on this show, you present a problem, you solve a problem, job that's, done. That's what I'm here for, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Talking of problems, a little bit of last week's show this week, which we can roll into this as well. This is, shall we say, an introduction to my much better half. So, as listeners that will be familiar, I have had to already make a couple of apologies on past shows for the fact that I missed 
some very obvious lines and very obvious references that I should have included in an initial conversation. So rather than making an apology to my wife for forgetting something, I thought it would be easier just to get her on the show to make her own point because she'll make it far more eloquently than me. Introducing Mrs. A Blog to Watch Weekly, my wife Jackie, or Jack, as she's known. Okay, I think that's a little bit of an unfair introduction <laughs> because actually... What's the, the last chance I'm going to get to speak? <laughs> well, you should explain. I have just listened to the most recent episode of the podcast uh-huh. and I found myself a little frustrated <laughs> because there was this really great discussion and you weren't making a very obvious contribution that I felt you should be making and I would have gone on some sort of social media platform to comment. However, there's an issue with that. You don't do social media. I don't do social media. So you thought rather than social media, you'd just do a worldwide podcast instead. I thought I'd go straight to the source and make my comment. <laughs> okay. That is your right to reply. It is my right to reply. So Ariel was making a very interesting... Just say it's interesting. Don't say it's a good point. Oh, I thought it was a great point. No, no, no. Don't, don't give him that. It was an absolutely great point. I was nodding uh-huh. in the car, okay. which is really tragic because I don't even, you know, I'm not a watch aficionado or whatever you all are. Anyway, <laughs> he was making the point that watches given as gifts and as part of traditions is of great value because it manages to pass on a passion and an interest in watches from one generation to another or, you know, on significant occasions and so on. We, a couple of weeks ago, went shopping. We you did. and I and our daughter who had just turned that day 18. And I forgot to mention that on the show. You did? Uh-huh. What did we go shopping for? <laughs> we went shopping for a watch. Yeah. Does your daughter have an interest in watches? Does now. Didn't really then. <laughs> no. Not even a little bit. Previously, when you've shown her watches, what has her interest level, level been? You've shown her pictures and she mostly hasn't liked anything. Indeed. But we decided that an 18th birthday present of a watch, given your interest, was significant and important, mm-hmm. much like Ariel was saying. So what did yes. we do? We took her to try on some things. We went to a number of fabulous stores. We did. And she tried on a number of watches. <laughs> we had a budget in mind. Yeah, that budget's now somewhat in the distance. It's Changed. It's, it's not just a line of cross, as they say on the TV show. It is a dot. The line not, is a dot to the you? The line is a dot to me. I think Joey and Friends should get some credit okay, there. Okay, was it Joey? I couldn't remember if it was Friends or the West Wing. It's normally one or the other. The point is, we went in initially thinking she would like one watch. Uh-huh. And several stores later, she'd gone from a watch probably in the realm of £3,000 to about £10,000, even liking things much more expensive than that. She had originally thought of a smaller dial. She was then approaching a much bigger dial. I think by the end it was a 42. Yes, we started off on three-hand 36mm Omegas and Breitlings and ended up on 42mm Speedmasters and 42mm Navitimers. So there was a bit of a journey that we went on in quite a short space of time. Yes, the most expensive space of time I've ever experienced. But the most important thing and the thing thing that is most significant, going with what Ariel is saying, is that you became more and more excited the more things that she tried on because you were watching her be happy about it and enjoying it. And so that it was this total father-daughter connection situation and it's like part of this whole sort of precious thing that she will ultimately end up with this watch which we have not yet decided on we're needing to decide which of our other children that we don't have we're selling in order to fund the watch for our our own own kids i have a dog sitting in front of me that you might also be able to hear brewer would you like to be sold into penury to pay for a brightling we're not selling we're not selling we're not selling dogs but either way 
that was like a really lovely thing that happened and even although watches has never been my passion I'm much more into it now than I ever was but I think that actually gift giving in that way where the knowledge from one person is passed to another that in the process in the process of gift giving is important and significant and a real life example had happened to you two weeks previous and you were talking about the one that you got when you were 16, 18 and for your first wedding anniversary so I just wanted to correct you what we're basically saying is I forgot oh, oh look and we're running out of time so thanks very much for coming on the show uh, <laughs> See you again soon. <laughs> Bye-bye. So on last week's show, or was it the week before? I can never remember. We had a, a conversation, Ariel, about going shopping. Uh, just about how we need other reasons to introduce new experiences for retail for which watches are relevant. And as you've just said, I'd completely forgotten that that very week I'd been shopping for an 18th birthday present for my daughter and it was going to be a watch. So actually, when I gave the three examples of watch shopping, I forgot the one that had immediately happened to me. But it got me thinking not just about more retail experiences, but also about the number of times you've gone in, if it's ever happened, that you've gone in to buy one thing and come out with something completely different, that actually seeing a watch in the flesh has made you go from, no, I don't like this, to I really do. We experienced that last weekend with the Speedmaster and with the Navitimer. Having gone in for three-hand watches, suddenly those were the ones that were really attractive to my daughter. What about the three of you guys? What's your kind of experience? I'll go first, I guess. I think it does happen from time to time. I think part of the ritual of deciding whether or not you want to buy a watch is comparing it to other you know, options that you could get. So I begin by looking at the watch I want and being like, okay, I'm gonna put this on hold for a second. And then I'm gonna find a bunch of other watches in that style, in that material, from that brand, in that price point, just to make sure that it's the one that, you know, I wanna spend the money on. And at times, you find a better deal or something like that, but it's part of being in hunting mode, right? Like you're in the mode to acquire, and maybe there's some collectors who just want one specific thing, but I think most collectors, they just want to acquire something and they're satisfied and then they, and then they, they the urge comes back, I don't know, a few months later, hopefully more than, hopefully more than a few hours later. That has never really happened to me. And uh, what has is that I have purchased a number of watches sight unseen. You know, I've, I've, I've seen pictures of them and I like the concept or whatever. And I was like, you know, I think I'm gonna like this and I, and I just bought them. The most expensive such watch was the uh, Master Compressor Navy Seals Diver, which is like a seven grand watch that I've never ever handled in my life before that. And still, it worked out great. So, you know, I guess that's okay. Paul, you ever bought Sight Unseen? Well, quite a few Sight Unseen back in the days of, of watch forums being the thing as opposed to, you know, Instagram telling you what you should and shouldn't be buying. But, you know, that was on a, on a watch forum in a scenario where you knew that if you didn't like it, you could put it back on the sales forum you know, and, and someone else would snap it up because they were all being traded at very reasonable prices. So buying sight unseen kind of made sense back then. Nowadays, you know, I, I think as has just been described, I'm the type of buyer who will look at something, fall in love with it, read everything there is possible to read about it, watch all the reviews of it. And then I have to these days, especially with kind of the crazy independent stuff that, that I have that tends to not be traditional round quote unquote normal watches anymore. I, I find I, I have to go and actually try the watch on before I could buy it. So um, yeah, having said that, you know, there, I guess there have been a few that I've put on that, that haven't sat 
right on the wrist or haven't given me the, the same feeling in person as as maybe you know that build up when you've done all the research and thought you've fallen in love with the watch but i tend to know what i want before i go in there and then just convince myself that i i want it as i see it and then place an order and wait forever for it it's the waiting it's the it's anticipation that's part of the sales this is very true yeah i am currently waiting for another debatoon actually before the dream watch which i placed an order for the day that they were bought by watchbot because i'd been wanting to order one for a while and then i was just like as soon as the news officially dropped that they were being bought i knew that the whole dynamic was changing and if i didn't get the order in then uh, i'd be waiting even longer than i currently am finally while we bring the whole geneva thing to a close was there anything that particularly impressed you ariel from afar seeing as you didn't travel out this time it's very difficult for me to enjoy it from afar i have to say i'm very much a visual person i saw a lot of the images and things like that i'm sure there's a lot of watches that we haven't talked about yet i will be returning to switzerland soon in a couple of weeks actually for me my value is mostly in actually seeing this stuff i think that we seeing a continuation of the conservative idea where there's just not that much absolutely wild stuff going on so an awful lot of commercial viability a lot of you know refinements a lot of things like that i mean there was plenty of good stuff but i don't know that there was any massive surprises or anything like that again the, the small independents are always going to be able to offer you know I- exceptional novelty but in, in tiny numbers so i like to think about what are those watches that are going to be crazy and impressive that you might actually be able to see out in the wild uh, on a regular basis and and those are still kind of few and far between Every once in a while, there's there's this new watch that is simply don't expect to see, right? And sometimes that, that just comes out of the blue, and that's that's part of part of the magic of the whole thing. And the Sejima edition of the Bulgari Octofinissimo was precisely that. You know, we received news about it in an email, and I thought to myself, well, this is cool, and I look forward to seeing this. But I wasn't that excited. I, I was I was excited about it, but you know, I've seen such a watch before. Yokofinissimo in, in polished state and steel, so I, th- I figured, you know, there's not going to be that much new about that. But when I saw it in person, well, I, I laughed myself to tears. Um, I, I was laughing uncontrollably for, for about a good 20 seconds, I think. Uh, it was it was hilarious in a way, because it is a watch that you, you, you cannot, by design, look at and read the time, because it's so shiny. It's shiny to a level that is that is unprecedented in, in many ways. Basically, what you have to imagine is an Octofinissimo, which is a very thin watch in all steel, but the steel is polished to an extent that it looks like chrome. So just because you've seen a polished case or bracelet before, this is nothing like that. This is like actual chrome. And then the dial is technically a mirror. And so you can see your face in full detail for what it's worth and and just, just be able to look at yourself, but not at the time. And I was picturing myself just wearing this watch outside or outdoors and figuring, you know, it's. I think it's impossible because the sun will be shining into your <laughs> face so unbelievably brightly that you, there's absolutely no chance whatsoever to read the time. And then, because there's no loom, you cannot read it in the dark either. So this is the most pointless watch ever, and yet it is fantastic. So I'm, I'm not, I'm not bashing it. And then we met with uh, Fabrizio Buonamassa, who's the head of uh, design of Bulgari watches, and we had a great chat and a great podcast recording. So. Be sure that you guys are stay tuned for that. And he told us the story, and uh, you will have to listen for the whole story there. But the point was basically that they, in a way, 
worked with this Japanese designer and the intention was to make the watch invisible. And how do you make something invisible? You turn it into a mirror. But then the problem is that it's so, sort of counterproductive because it's also the most visible watch ever because, as we said, this is the new Breitling emergency. <laughs> if you get lost in a forest, you can signal for help. You can probably see this from space, actually. It's so bright and so so reflective. <laughs> so it's it's funny, it's hilarious, it's beautifully made, and it's it's very bulgari. It's like the ultimate extension of we like shiny things on our wrist. Yes, yeah. I don't know whether this is a particularly British thing because surprisingly i know the rest of the world is surprised at this that it's not always sunny in this country huh. i'm sure paul has experience of this sitting in a classroom just getting the sunshine right when you're at school so that you can reflect it off the crystal of your watch onto the blackboard or whiteboard or wall or straight into the teacher's eye this is the days before <laughs> laser pens I want to know, first of all, anybody's experience of doing that, but also I really want to put this watch on like a 14-year-old in a school classroom <laughs> and just see what happens, see how much trouble they can get into. All of it, all <laughs> making, the trouble. Just, just, it, 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 would, it would be like a lighthouse in a classroom. I mean, this is the perfect Scottish watch, however, because there is no sunshine, so it's perfectly legible in Scotland, so send it over here. For you, this is just a satin finished watch, basically. <laughs> it's brushed. Yeah. It's a brush finished. <laughs> Paul, did you get hands on this? Uh, I did not. I, I like some versions of, of the Octave Finissimo. This uh, is not one of them that I like, so I did, I did not <laughs> seek that one out. I think a 14-year-old's wrist is probably the right place for it. Sorry, yeah. controversial. Oh. Uh, I, can I just say, I really miss having Ariel around. I, I think you'd have had such a laugh at this. It, it would have been hysterical. Everyone needs to realize that like, David and I are like this, um, like a comedy couple for watches. And we, we, and Abbott and Costello. Well, that would imply that we do the jokes. We're just, we're sort of laughing in the corner, kind of. Like, we're like more like Beavis and Butthead. And we just, we see this hilarity unfold before us. So like going to these events is like a, it's like a comic performance. Like yeah. sometimes it's great. And other times we just see things that we just can't stop laughing because uh, either it like ties into an inside joke we have or there's some type of like, you know, like Swiss watch marketing trope about like, you know, <laughs> making something up about their history or claiming that they do something that they clearly don't do themselves. It's just They just feed into some stereotype. And we just, we crack Always. up about it. There's some product which is just like patently, like doesn't work. Or like when a complicated <laughs> watch that they baby just like explodes in their hands. It's like all these things that happen too often. And so we laugh about it. It's like, I, like how, how often do we look at each other, Dave, and we're like, okay, here it goes again. Yes. <laughs> Yes, that's exactly what One I more time we have to deal with this. <laughs> yes. I do fear that to my packing list for next year, I'm going to include, have to include like a paper bag so that I can hand it to David for when he's like breathing too heavily, for when he's like <laughs> losing control. Yes. Because it was not only hysterical to see, but it was also even more funny to watch somebody <laughs> else completely losing it <laughs> at this watch. I can I just say a shout out to Francis, my new favourite person from America. Uh, not excluding you, Ariel, of course, who was just a joy to deal with uh, at the Bulgari event, so I know she listened, so I shout out to her. But yeah, this watch was just amazing. It was so it was as mad as a box of frogs, <laughs> but you you just wanted it. You just were like, I will never wear this, but the fact that this exists on this planet is just a happy thing. The fact that somebody, in this case, at Bulgari, just kind of rolled out of bed and thought, 
you know what? We don't have the world's thinnest watch anymore. Let's just make one that's we think's invisible. Yes. This is the route we've gone. So I'm waiting for the Richard Mule. I don't know what they'll make out of to be reflective. They actually possibly will just make an invisible watch. It'll be like the Emperor's New Clothes watch to be a tattoo or something. <laughs> but no, th this watch was actually stunning. And to be fair, I was particularly enamoured with quite a few of the Bulgaries, in particular this eight-day, which I think David got a shot of next to my Panerai, which is also eight-day. So anything that's an eight-day power reserve, uh, I I'm into, and the, the Bulgari was particularly nice. Any other highlights from the Bulgari show, David? Uh, big shout-out to Francis, absolutely. Um, Well, mm. no, this the search image, is, it, it's like the Men in Black device. You know, you look into it and then you forget everything else that we've seen before or even perhaps after true very true so this is the mr jones the golden hour watch that just came out limited edition of a relatively small number of pieces sold out quite quickly which i guess makes sense you know this is a brand that is just now starting to get that type of treatment this is a watch that's under 500 dollars. you know with a swiss made stp movement in there this was a collaboration with an artist. Most of them are. And I think that they do such a great job when it comes to that. The founder, Crispin Jones, is an artist himself and I think has the best model out there for how to do artist collaborations. A lot of brands do it right now. He predated a lot of them and he has a really good model behind it, which I happen to like. This one is sort of a celebration of the English garden, an artistic, you know, sort of iteration of it. But if you like bees, like the insect bees, you'll you'll like this one. It's got a fun character to it. Again, none of these are supposed to be the most legible in the world, but I found a lot of fun in these. I hope collectors start to wear these a little bit more. What I recommend to people is if you get one of them, this is the 45 millimeter wide version. There's smaller versions of the Mr. Jones watches, but this is sort of their XL case, which which I like. The other one's like 37, it's a bit small for me. And if you take the stock strap off, which is usually not that super exciting and find some crazy funky strap, you can have some of the most interesting experiences with their watches. So that's sort of like the pro tip. You can have a watch that will sort of like get the nod of enthusiasts because it's really cool and just sort of take the stock strap off because sometimes they're not as exciting put on your own and you'll have a really fun experience and again this particular one was the mr jones watch golden hour which again i don't know why it has to do with that because this has to do with gardens but again part of the art yes it's all about the art i'm a big fan of mr jones watches and when you compare what you're getting for the money to what some big brands try to sell you for some more sort of money then as long as you don't actually want to be able to tell the time because you know you've carrying a phone and can just use that then these watches are great they're really fun i recommend just going to the website just for a wee scroll through the different ways crispin gets his artists to design different ways of time telling different themes to them I, i'm a big fan of alternative time telling uh, and this uh, certainly looks pretty cracking uh, paul have you come across these down in london i imagine there's been a red bar or two or similar watch events where mr jones has made an appearance. Uh, i've seen a, i've seen a few of them and I, I do i agree i think you know they are good fun watches and and i do like as as you just said alternative ways of telling the time for me, I think possibly at this price point or a similar price point, I would lean towards a studio underdog as a fun alternative watch. I've been speaking to Rich and trying to convince him to make a further run of the purple dial. I know he's not actually going to do, you know, the, the aubergine again, but I, I was trying to convince him at a recent event to, to do a dairy milk, which I think would be quite fun. <laughs> but yes, I, I, I do appreciate the Mr. Jones watches. I think, I think they're good fun. 
we dropped on the website this morning, I think, or this morning as we call it, a new watch from Mont Blanc, the Mont Blanc Star Legacy Nicholas Riusek. Now, for those of you that aren't familiar with the kind of Nicholas Riusek range of Mont Blanc watches, I recommend go to the article and have a look. These are chronographs that have a kind of different style of telling you what the elapsed time is and I've always been a particularly big fan of this way of doing it. They rotate the dial rather than rotating the hands is probably the best way of describing it. Ariel, can you give us any history as to who Nicholas Riusek was? So there's a little bit of an argument out there between Riusek and Louis Monet as to who invented the chronograph. It really depends on your chronology. For a while it was Riusek and then Louis Monet may have, may have beaten him. In any event, he was a very early pioneer in creating a chronograph device and his was not a wristwatch. It was meant for timing horse races. And it was sort of a primitive device to sort of measure a start and stop time. It actually used something that like mark, uh, used a pen to mark something on paper. And the watch itself has these two subdials that very much look uh, like this original device. So I've seen a, a replica of the device years ago when Montblanc originally came out with this. This is one of the, my favorite stories of Montblanc because this is a great old historic object that they developed a modern watch around, an exclusive movement for it. They haven't all looked as good as the others, but I think there's a lot of really pretty ones out there and this watch is, is aged well. So there's the new version that came out, which is clean and slick and nice, but there's other ones that are nice as well. So I've always been a fan. It's always been on my list to have one of these. And especially for people that like dressy chronographs, this is a very strong contender. I think it leans more towards a kind of sports chronograph almost. And for the money involved, it's uh, 8,600 US dollars. It is not at all shabby in terms of what it's competing against and it's a completely different look you're not going to buy one of these and everyone's going to accuse you of getting a cheap Daytona or or you, you couldn't wait for the Rolex or you had to get this this is a, a completely different way of doing it at David Montblanc good bad and different yeah I agree with Ariel said the, the Nicola Riasek collection is I, I think over well over 10 years old maybe 15 and the story is cool and they created this bespoke movement for it where the risks where the discs are rotating and that is because the original device by Riosac worked the same way so they had two rotating discs to time horse races and anytime you stop the two little arms or little well arrowheads would come down and they were soaked in ink and they would mark the disc and you could just wipe the, the ink off uh, from the top of these discs and so when you look at the watch you don't see the hands move over over these subdials for the chronograph but you have these discs rotate and that's really nice and it made for an interesting dial layout and as you say why you know a lot of the other chronographs look the same and this one doesn't but not in a bad way or not even in a quirky way it's just a very elegant bespoke chronograph let me add here that the Mont Blanc connection is with the pens, right? So the fact that it writes and is a chronograph, it was sort of the combination mm. of Mont Blanc's heritage as a pen maker, as well as oh. them doing watches. So this is one Good of the one. more subtle but meaningful details. Because again, Nicholas Riasek himself has no other direct connection to Mont Blanc as a company, but the writing part, and that's why, you know, so chronograph literally means time writer, and they made pens just for them. They just, they couldn't handle how significant it all felt. Right, I see I hadn't got that uh, particular connection. Paul, you're a fan of watches that use chronographs in a slightly different way. 
Does this appeal? I'm a fan of watches that tell time in a slightly different way. This is a very, very nice looking watch. As you just said, very reasonably priced. I'd need to see it in person, not because I think 43 mil is too big, but I'd want to see what the 15 mil thickness looks and feels like on the wrist. But yeah, I'm, I'm very impressed with this, on paper at least. But as we discussed earlier in the episode, I think it's one I'd definitely have to actually see in person to, to decide whether I wanted to buy it. But definitely like the look of it. Very interesting. Yeah, I, there's, there's not actually any pictures of the side on it. It reads as being quite thick, but it doesn't give the impression in the images that it will wear thick. But I agree it would be interesting to see what it's like in person. So go and check that out. It is a very good looking watch indeed. And... I have to say the design language right the way through from the strap texture to the dial texture, it, it holds together pretty well. Ariel, who would be dealing with this at Mont Blanc nowadays? Obviously it was Davide Sherato. Who's replaced him or is this likely to be, have been in the design works for so long that this is actually one of his designs from way back. It, it doesn't strike me as something that he was would have been responsible for. There is a new gentleman who has replaced him who is a product person and understands product pretty well. He definitely cares about watches a lot and has put a lot of effort into it. This is sort of a good use of, of resources, right? Because what do you have? You have a combination of an existing movement Okay, they don't have to do that. They just, you know, make something new. They just sort of come out a refined version of it. They've never really felt like they've quite got this watch right. Now they're taking a decidedly modernist approach, whereas a decidedly classicist approach originally. And again, I think that this is a mature enough collection. But I hope that this will do is go make people look back and see all the reassects that came before and be like, wow, there's some cool watches here we might want to get into. So I hope that that's part of the, the effect, not just the sale of this new version. Yeah, I mean, Montblanc have got a decent range offering just now. I'm a big fan of the... Geospheres. The Geosphere, yeah. I'm a big fan of the Geosphere, and they've got the watch that they released uh, last year at Watches and Wonders, which has also gone down very well. So, you know, going slightly left field, there's, there's a brand there that's got a little bit of something for everyone, and they're priced pretty competitively, considering... Uh, the movements and the design and the, you know, they are reliable, good, well-built watches. We go from something that is a bit of a different way of using a chronograph to something that's much more traditional. And this is the Karev Bucherer 40mm Monero flyback. Okay, here's my question. Can somebody explain the brand Carl F. Bucherer to me? Where, where does it fit in the world of watch brands well it's owned by a, a retailer so they've got distribution so they know how to sell them i i, I just wonder is, is that a problem am i put off of this because i mean it's a very nice looking watch but am i put off this because i just think about the shop and so i think of this as being as you say a retailer's brand rather than actually a luxury horology brand which by all accounts, it actually is. To be honest, it's a great brand. Not all of their watches are gorgeous looking, but they've had some very talented people in the technical department, in the marketing department. They've got movies with their watches in them, a lot of popular ones, the John Wick ones, uh, Atomic Blonde, uh, a lot of other you know really cool action things. They've done a lot of things right. Yes, the brand is sort of a moving target in terms of what, what it means, but there's a lot of satisfying things that they do, and I think that that's 
a really crucial part of their appeal. For a traditionalist who maybe is more interested in a watch that is older and maybe made watches back when mechanical watches were a thing. Yeah, they're a little bit more contemporary, but I think that in North America and in Asia especially, consumers are less interested in how old a brand is, whereas in some other parts of the world, Europe, for example, the age of a brand is tied to its legitimacy to be able to like make products. And so I think it just depends where your culture is from. Right. So you think this uh, a, a European and American thing looks at this and goes, you run shops, you don't make watches. I mean, it goes back to the product. If they make a good product, I don't really care why they do it. And why they do it is nice. But honestly, every brand had to start somewhere. So isn't it sort of an artificial limitation to be like, well, I only buy from brands that are at least 100 years old. I'm like, OK, but why? Like, does that do you have to be 100 years old to make a good product? No. So it's just like an arbitrary distinction. This particular watch that we're talking about is a nice enough looking watch that looks the same as a lot of other nice enough looking watches. And therefore, I wouldn't be interested at this price point or probably any other price point, to be perfectly honest. It's not even the retailer association. It's just it, it doesn't do anything for me. You know, it doesn't add anything to the game. It, it, it's, it's perfectly pleasant, but otherwise nothing more. And so do you think that this is selling precisely because Bucherer, are Bucherer the largest retailer in the world? They're close to it, are they not? In terms of outlets and scale, they're certainly very high up in the food chain in terms of retail. You think it's just that they can stock these, they've got salesmen that will push them. Can you buy a Karlov Bucherer anywhere other than a Bucherer boutique? Do we know? Do we care? I'm not sure, honestly, if, if whether you can, but there there are so many Bucher boutiques that maybe it doesn't make a difference because there are you know plenty True. of point of sale. The red one in particular is quite attractive, but when you look at the price, seven grand versus the eight grand of the Mont Blanc that we've just spoken about, then unless you are just happens to be in one of those boutiques, you happen to have that budget, and you know the salesperson does a good job. I'm not sure why you end up with the Bucherer. I, I think I would be slightly put off buying a watch with the name on it of the shop that I just walked into to buy it, but then maybe I am just the world's worst snob. Well, and maybe you're right, Ariel. Maybe it is just a, a European thing that that's just not what we like. To do. We don't like buying what we perceive as being own-branded mm. goods. You know, when you go into the supermarket, and maybe it is from that, that you know you go into the supermarket in Europe and you've got the Heinz baked beans and then you've got the baked beans by the brand that you're shopping with, Tesco, Lidl, whatever it happens to be. Maybe that's just a mindset that we carry with us when we shop for luxury goods as well. We can't see past the fact that the name on the watch is also the name over the front Maybe, door. but double-signed watches are a big deal these days, you know? So, so precisely those watches that say where they were bought often fetch a premium, you know? So so that it, it's funny how that works. Oh, it's a Rolex, but it says the name of the store? Wow, I'm in. As soon as I find a Rolex with a Domino's label on it, I'm right there. <laughs> exactly. What about a car left Bucherere branded with Bucherere? That type of devil signing interests me. <laughs> it's a Grand Seiko. Grand Seiko from Seiko. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we both went yeah. there. Maybe they need a collaboration yeah. uh, with somebody. Well, they have the Bucherere Blue, so they could have the Bucherere Blue Carlef Bucherere. Let's try to say that 10 <laughs> times straight. <laughs> and every single one is in a different font. Ooh. Just because who doesn't need more fonts in a watch? Ah, you just made it unsellable. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's an interesting point, though. I mean, Bucherer are famous for these Bucherer blues. You've got the, the Tudor. I've seen, I think there's been an IWCs. There's even been a, 
a Tiso, one of the new Tiso Powermatic, you know, the, the kind of cheap and cheerful ones. Karlev Bukerer Bukerer Blue. Bukerer Blue. Karlev Bukerer Bukerer Blue. Uh, yeah. We'll say that that many times <laughs> while looking into the mirrored Optopanissimo and so happens. <laughs> <laughs> Snap your feet and you're not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> Takes you straight to Geneva. Uh, good stuff. Well, go and check out the Karlev Bukerer. It is a good looking watch if you can get past some of the links. Maybe it's just my mindset that troubles me. I'd be really interested to see in the show notes that come out on a Friday or comment in the article as to what everybody thinks about the issues. Write your emails encouraging Rick to open yeah, his yes, mind so a little bit. If you want to email the show, it's podcast at a blog to watch.com encouraging me to open my mind and open my wallet, <laughs> I suppose in terms of buying one of these. So that is us for this week. Uh, I don't know what everybody's got exciting coming up. Paul, are you just endlessly scrolling through Instagram Wondering what cue for what exotic watch you want uh, to join. I mean, yet. I've got work to do to pay for the watches, <laughs> to be fair, Rick. <laughs> you have banks to rob. B- banks to rob. People to make poor. <laughs> it's the things he does in between scrolling through Instagram. That, that's true. Yeah, and my my next uh, watch adventure will be uh, watch time uh, in New York in October. Um, so, yeah, in between, in between now and then, uh, I'll, I'll probably try and keep the powder dry and uh, not buy any more watches and your chance of success uh well i mean the the db28 xp is due to arrive next month so that does need to be paid for if anyone wants to buy a a, a vintage ap5402 then uh hit me up (laughs) our fees on this show are less than chrono 24 but there is still awesome so do contact the show podcast at blogtowatch.com for a real handle all your AP sales needs honestly we're Love good. It. <laughs> David what are you up to? yeah it's just uh, finally September things are heating up watch is coming in so so you know a lot to look forward to finally summer vacation is over for all the brands and stuff which is just great yeah some of them were still quite on holiday yeah. at the start of Geneva watch weeks so there, 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 there was some foot dragging and, and holiday regrets Major. I think we're being expressed <laughs> now that folk were back. Uh, Ariel, you've got some events coming up with Oris and eBay. Are they imminent? Yes. Yeah, so less than a day from now, we have a large event here in Los Angeles with Oris at the um, Arts District Brewing Company. We have probably over 100 people, well over 100 people actually, coming from the Blotch Watch audience to hang out with Oris and see their latest watches. So that'll be exciting. They're still doing well. And then two days later, over at the Lapeer Hotel, the rooftop terrace, we're doing an interesting novel event with eBay where they're going to bring out some of their vendors and there's going to be some special deals on watches you can only get there and people can bring their watches and trade them with the vendors or even with one another and I'm really curious to see what will happen. I'd really like to start building events where people can go and trade watches with one another. Not a cash transaction but a you know one watch or one or more watches so this is something that I'd like to do more of and this is a start so it's going to be a very exhausting and educational week. Cool well I have a very nice Oris here that's going back to them but Paul if you want to swap it for the AP, then uh, you know, just tap us up after the show. I've got. I, a... I think thirty nine mil. You know, even though it's called jumbo, it's probably too small for you, Rick. So sorry about that. I'll, I'll take the hit. Will honestly, you? that's I'll very kind of you. S- such a shame you're six hundred miles away. <laughs> I can sort that out very quickly. <laughs> Good stuff. Well, thanks for joining us, Paul. Paul, where can people find you on the internet? I am at f one ptb on Instagram. Great stuff. So go and shout at Paul or tap up for his AP. 
David, where can we find you? ABTW underscore David. Ah, David still living out life, regretting his underscore. No. And Ariel, where are you? <laughs> I am on a blog to watch.com and I am on Ariel to watch on Instagram. Great stuff. And you can find me at Rick TikTok and you can join us all again next week. So thank you for listening. Do comment on the show notes. Do like, subscribe, do all the stuff you're supposed to do when you listen to a podcast. You know, we give you free stuff. You give us five stars. That's kind of the way it's supposed to work. But anyway, say goodbye, folks. Bye, everyone. Cheers, guys. Bye. Bye, everyone.